What's going on, Wildcatters? It's Jake Corley here with Digital Wildcatters and want to give you guys a quick update. Six years ago, Colin and I came up with the idea of bringing a South by Southwest style event of energy to Houston. And this October, we're manifesting this dream into reality. Is it a crazy idea? Absolutely. Because our mission of Fuse is to bring together the builders and the innovators in energy that are transforming how we produce, distribute, and store energy. But in order to do that, we have to bring together all subsectors of energy, oil and gas, renewables, hydrogen, nuclear, geothermal, utilities, and battery technology. This is unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And on top of that, we're taking over five city blocks in East Downtown Houston, four stages with three content tracks, seven venues, and expecting north of 2,000 attendees. If you're looking to showcase your technology, we've got expo space for about 100 companies, as well as the opportunity to demo your tech live on stage. Come join us October 26th and 27th here in Houston to experience more opportunities for networking, learning, brainstorming, and career-changing connections than ever before at Fuse 22. Tickets are now on sale at digitalwildcatters.com forward slash Fuse, F-U-Z-E. Hey, everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In another bit of trying to exert influence over the railroad commissioner race, which to date I've had zero impact on, welcome my guest on today, Luke Warford, the Democratic candidate. You, you're the Democratic the candidate, right? Because yeah, yeah. you didn't have an opponent. No. Yeah, and that's and perfect. We're, and we're past the runoff. So I, there yeah, we go. Yeah. Yeah. Past the runoff. Welcome in, Luke. Yeah. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Why in God's name do you want to be railroad commissioner? Look, I mean, mostly I'm sick of the people who are currently on the railroad commission messing things up, right? And that's from the winter storm to uh, their inability to enforce flaring regulations to... Um, how much we're all paying for energy now. Like, I just care a lot about these issues. And, um, you know, happy to, we'll get into my background and all this stuff. But like, I care deeply about the intersection of energy and politics. And I think that has just a huge impact on people's lives. And there's no office that's more important than this one from that perspective. So so do this, go go through your background. How did, how did you get to feeling that way and how'd you get here? Yeah, for sure. So um, I studied political science in college, did a, did a master's uh, at the London School of Economics, have always- A fellow alum with Mick Jagger. Yeah. There yeah. you go. He's, there's some good ones, but I think he might be the coolest, honestly. Well, he's coolest, period. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. just a lot. In general, yeah. Lot. So, well, um, my, growing up, my dad owned a CD store. And so, so my middle and my parents, um, my parents met waiting in line for Bob Marley tickets. And my middle name is Dylan after Bob Dylan. So like grew up just like idolizing. Like, okay, that's very cool. I'll give you that. Mick Jagger. And I mean, and a lot of, yeah, just, I was supposed to be Dylan Lucas, not Lucas Dylan. And my, my grandmother was like, no, that's it. I don't like that. Like, I don't like Dylan. I don't know why she didn't like it, but, um, so went to the London School of Economics, just- Where was undergrad? University of Delaware. University of Delaware, yeah. okay. Which is kind of random, but they yeah. you know, gave me a decent scholarship and so got out of there with no totally. debt, which is a good, good move. Um, and just like have had 
a bunch of different jobs, but all, you know, went, went to work on the Obama campaign, worked at the World Bank, where I did some energy, international uh, development policy work, um, was a, worked for a nonprofit in DC, went overseas, lived in Ethiopia for a year, working on international uh, trade and energy work, worked in consulting where I had like actual oil and gas clients and renewable clients and um, worked in tech, came, worked at the Texas Democratic Party for a couple of years and then ran for this office. And I just um, like have always, I don't know. I mean, I think energy is everything, right? Like it's, it's like so important to, I mean, and just even as we've seen this year to our national security, to how we live our lives with the grid failure, to just like our ability to function as a society on a day-to-day basis. And so I, um, you know, it's just been like a running theme on all of these jobs I've had that kind of feel a little disconnected, but are super connected in my mind. Well, no, and that's why I'm glad you came on, because one of the things I've always said is, you know, unfortunately, people die when energy costs are high. Yeah. People die when you buy energy from authoritarian dictators. Mm-hmm. And it just because of the importance in our life, it does it deserves way better than just jingleism, you know, yeah. or or throwing mud at each other or one liners. It it deserves to be to be thoughtfully discussed because yeah. um I always say if we ignore the rise in carbon and the atmosphere and the rise of a degree, degree and a half, if we ignore that, we're doing that at our own peril. Yeah. But at the same time, if we don't recognize the good that hydrocarbons have done, we're basically ma- we're basically throwing stones at poor people, right? Oh, uh, you know, because uh, the rich people aren't going to suffer any. But right. yeah, well, a hundred percent. And I think, like we, and you know, I mean, there's nowhere that that is clearer than like spending. You know, I spent a year living in East Africa, right? And like we, I've you know, I know you've talked about this on the pod before too, but just like what we how we're thinking about the energy transition in the US versus how like it's going to affect the rest of the world, the developing world, I think is huge. Um, But I think something that we don't give enough credit to, and frankly, like Democrats don't give enough credit to is is that we need reliability, right? And like making sure the lights can stay on, not just in periods during the winter storm, but like we need oil and gas in order to have a system that works here, right? In order to have an economy that that functions. And um, I just think we get into this doom and gloom sort of like, are you pro or anti oil and gas? And it's like, that's, it's way more complicated than that, right? And like, we need, we need Texas oil and gas so much right now. And, and the situation in Ukraine has made that just so incredibly clear. Yeah. So walk me through, well, let's do it this way. I make you energy czar of Texas tomorrow. You don't even have to listen to the governor. Yeah. You don't have to listen to the legislature. Lay out the plan for me. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. So I think there's a few really important priorities, right? Number one is answering the question, you know, like we literally in our slogan on our website is let's keep the lights on, right? So a huge thing behind why I'm running is making sure that we can keep the power on in extreme all the time, but in extreme weather, right? And so I think one really, this is not, you know, all powerful. This is like literally the Railroad Commission should be doing this right now is creating and enforcing a clear weatherization rule for 
the most important producers in I our mean, system. Senate, Senate Bill 3 right. from Sen- 2021 says they're supposed to be doing that. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, something that I think a lot of people don't realize is even going back to 2011, like they've had the statutory authority to do this. And because there was a big, you know, there's a big storm in 2011. Grid almost fails. Natural, there's natural gas problems because of the lack of weatherization. And there are all of these recommendations from UT, from nat- from the national sort of regulators saying like, hey, your natural gas infrastructure is at risk. Like you need to um, pr- make sure that it's prepared for cold weather, at least the, the you know, critical producers. Um, and they ju- the Railroad Commission just like didn't do anything. Like every lawyer, lawyer I've talked to has been said, yeah, they have authority to do this, but they just didn't do anything. And... You know, I think like number one, had they done that, that would have prevented what happened last February. Um, number two, it's now been 18 months. They're, you know, we're in the comment, the public comment period for a new weatherization rule just wrapped up on Monday on the 15th. And um but there's essentially no transparency about who has to comply or what complying looks like. And they've got a terrible enforcement track record, right? They don't enforce the uh, rules on flaring and venting. They don't, you know, they're not capping orphan wells at the rate we need them to. And so, and so, you know, down the line of things that they're not doing that they're supposed to. So even if they made a strong weatherization standard and there was the transparency we needed on it, I have no confidence based on, you know, the last 30 years that they're going to enforce the rules. Yeah, my my pet peeve on the winterization thing is, you know, at one point, I mean, the government can't actually make you produce, right? right. I mean, that that's a taking of property totally. and all that. So there's a little bit of the, I'm going to make you prepare and train for the marathon, but you don't actually have to go run it. So yeah. that's one of the things that, that kind of bothers me. But I do get the sentiment. But behind it, we the industry was caught ill prepared for the freeze that happened. Now, granted, it was the first time we'd had a freeze like that. Yeah, but but still, so I, I kind of get that. Um, well, and and I think that's only. I mean, to your initial question about okay, um, energies are that's only part of the solution here, right? Like, there's a huge other part of the solution that is increasing production, right, in oil and gas, but also expanding. Um, wind, solar, hydrogen, you know, geothermal as it becomes more viable. Like, I think we need a, there is a, um, a security in expanding where we're getting our energy from and, and having more production, right? We have more production capacity than any other state. Like, we should be, the fact that it, you don't need to be an energy expert to look at like, oh, they have more production capacity than anyone else, but they're, you know, paying more. They have neither affordability. We have neither affordability nor reliability. Like something's clearly wrong. Yeah. I, th- I talked about this with a guy named Campbell Faulkner about six weeks ago on the podcast when talking about ERCOT. And his take was we kind of have just sleepwalked into yeah. where we are and you know, we basically set up a free market system for for generation that is pay for energy only. Yeah, which might have worked okay, except you've got a federal tax code that, in effect, subsidizes renewables. So yeah. you can build. I don't know the tax law well enough on it, but I get pitched all the time by people. Hey, man, we're going to get all our money back through tax credits. 
So if the solar farm makes any money, that's where yeah. we get our return. You know, and so so you in effect have renewables being built for free. When they generate electricity, they get paid. And unfortunately, because there's not a penalty or something based around reliability of that producing source, you don't have the economics to do baseload type stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think we were talking this morning on the BDE show yeah. about it. That that to me is going to be the big thing that has to be addressed is how do we do that? Do we say, OK, it's great. We'll pay you for electricity. And if you can't deliver, you have to pay X. And yeah. that's what do you have a solution for that or some thoughts on how I mean, I mean, how, I, how to handle the the reliability dispatchability, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, one, it goes back to just a general expansion approach, right, that we should be increasing production. But I do think specifically on the last point you made that paying folks even when they don't have to produce makes sense, right? Like we, if you're going to try to keep costs down and or but then sacrifice reliability, I think we've seen really clearly that that doesn't work. And there's also, I think, pretty widespread, you, you know, this is what you, you run for statewide office. You travel all over the state, right? I'm in Houston now, but we are you know off and i was in marlin and madisonville and these like deep red towns. i got a i got a trivia thing for you uh about marlin texas yeah okay do you realize that is where uh hilton built his eighth hotel in his career no there is I a no idea in downtown marlin there is a 10-story building that's been abandoned it was, I'm making up the year, maybe 1932. Yeah, I was going to say. It was built as a Hilton Hotel because there are mineral springs kind of right across the street. Wow. It services there. Hilton supposedly built, call it eight hotels in Texas, lost his shirt and went away. But anyway. Yeah. Sorry, you know. Uh, also the home of Whoop Barbecue, but go ahead. Yeah, he, Marlin, couldn't, he couldn't cut. Well, I, I guess the point is, you know, in pretty much every room I'm in, right? I we I go, you go to political events, you talk, and and I always say, okay, how many of y'all lost power during last February's winter storm, or know somebody who did, and and sort of like have people shout out what that was like. And in obviously in you know rooms of Democrats, people are pissed and and whatever, but like have been in rooms full of independents and Republicans where people are also upset, right? They no one thinks that where we currently are is is striking the right balance and. Um, so I think we have to take steps to increase reliability. And there's some things that are like directly railroad commission related, like weatherization, like mapping out who our critical producers are, the supply chain mapping that they're also supposed to do from Senate Bill 3. Uh, that's, um, so that's my that's my pet peeve on yeah. Senate Bill. So sorry, you're, yeah. Senate Bill 3. Sorry, yeah, you're going to yeah, have no, to no. hear this is. OK, so what they did is they went through and they basically said, if you produce more than 50 MCF yeah. of natural gas, you're deemed critical. If you're deemed critical by any entity, you cannot participate in the LARS program, the load reduction yeah, program yeah, yeah. for ERCOT. So we have these water floods out there with 25 megawatts, 30 megawatts, you know, 35 megawatts of demand on power that produce 57 MCF a day that are now deemed critical and can't participate in the LARS program. Yeah. Uh, now, the railroad commissions will tell you, we're having these hearings, we're going to work through it. But people are actually saying, that's a million dollars worth of legal fees to me. Why am I going to do that? Right, of course. So my fear is we're going to have the New York Times 
headline that says XYZ oil company produced their water flood all through the winter storm and killed people. And it's, there should be a basic recognition at the railroad commission to say, if your electric load is way more than right. the amount of gas you're generating, you're <laughs> you, not deemed critical. Right, you should be able to turn in fact, on. Yeah, yeah. In fact, and I'm a libertarian It's here, counterproductive. Could, you should have to, right? Is I that could, what you're going to say? Well, I could even live, the libertarian in me could even live with, not only are we going to exempt you from being critical, we're going to force you to participate in the large program. Yeah. Because that's at least in my mind. You mean because it would trait. make sense? Because that would be policy. Make, that It would make sense. Well, but I think the point that you're getting at and and – this, you know, like I'm, this is my first time running, you know, like I care a lot about politics. I have been a political nerd since I was young, but like, this is my first time running for office. And I think, you know, I saw this working in tech. I've seen this, um, you know, doing energy work, like having regulators or people, government, elected officials who don't understand, like a lot of these issues are incredibly complex, right? And nuanced and you need complex, nuanced solutions and having, people in power who like don't understand that complexity or that nuance, like we end up with programs that don't make sense. Right. And I think that is, you know, one of the, one of the biggest, and so when people get frustrated about government, it's like, yeah, a lot of times you have people who don't understand the thing they're making rules about making the rules. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I think it's also a second point because I've always been a political junkie and yeah. it's actually been nice me being a political junkie because I've been a libertarian, so I always know I'm going to lose. You know, so to some degree, that gives me a healthy view on, on yeah. everything. There, there's also needs to be a sense of humility within the government to understand that everything's a trade-off. To there, is no, right. there is no panacea. There is no one size fits yeah. all. There's only better, you know. Right. And we can all fight about what's better, but we cannot fight about this is utopia. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, uh, part of doing this too is like frustration at my own party about that also, right? Uh, frustration at Democrats in, in general, in like large part for not, you know, like I'm sort of a pragmatic incrementalist and in not to, I don't, I don't really like labels, but like to, to your point, um, I think we should be making things a little bit better, a little bit better. You know, that's like re really how progress happens. And too many people in who too many Democrats are, you know, want to say, oh, this is the solution. This entire industry is bad. It's like, that's what? Like, that's so uh, dissociated from reality, from like any understanding of our history, of how our, our, our economy, of just like the role that Texas oil and gas has played both in the state, but across the country for you know, a hundred years. The one World War Two. Right. I mean, we talked about that on BDE today too. The uh, the Germans had way more coal than anybody else on the planet. We're using Fisher trope technology to create yeah. gasoline, but Rommel's tanks stalled because that gasoline's not as good as stuff right. refined from the East Texas oil field. Right. And and we there's, I think like there's so so much pride that. Texans have about that and should have about that. And I think like, you know, we, again, it, I, I am like beating up on the Democrats, but I like, genuinely just, I, I just think it's not, if you don't understand history, if you don't understand what's happened and, and, and what has gotten us to here, it's really hard to then figure out where we need to go. And, well, well, let's, let's go to that point. Yeah, yeah. Cause at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think what, 
the argument against you would be is, okay, we may be the most horrible place in the world. Uh, we still have this amazing economy. Yeah. Everybody wants to move here. Yeah. You know, say what you want about Abbott, say what you want about Patrick, you know, say what you want about the existing railroad commission, yeah, all totally. that sort of stuff. You seem like a pragmatic type guy. Okay, yeah. you're obviously pretty sharp, all that. If we let you in, how do we not get AOC, John Kerry, yeah, Elizabeth yeah. Warren, yeah. President Biden in, you know, how do, how does that not happen? Look, I get the, I get this question all the time, and so I I actually like love. I'm not it. that I, smart, in that no, original no, stuff. <laughs> no, but I but I genuinely love talking about it. You know, I was um yeah, I, I genuinely pretty regularly someone will raise their hand and be like, well, how does AOC affect your policies, right? And I'm like, I don't. Just to be clear, I don't really care what National Democrats are doing. I don't really care. AOC is doing what is best for her and her constituents and her district. That has nothing to do with what I would do as railroad commissioner, which is the reason I'm running for this office is because I think the people who are in this office are not serving the public, right? Like I was raised with an idea of what public service means. And I think the people in this office are not serving the public. I think they're serving their really rich billionaire donors and and everyone like Texans, Texas consumers are getting hurt by that. And so I want to run to do what's best for Texas. And that is what I would do as a railroad commissioner. Um, I think like the, so we were talking about this before we started recording, but, um, or maybe it was at, now order of things. Did we talk about my dad before? No. Uh, no, no, no. So, gro so growing up, my, um, my dad owned a CD store and, uh, like it was the nineties, um, I would, you know, it was like right down the street from my elementary school. So I'd walk there every day after school. Right. I gr grew up in the CD store, right? I thought it was the coolest thing. There yeah. were like Nirvana, the like Nirvana posters on the wall, like all this really cool shit. You know, um, it's so funny that you say CD store instead of record store, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it sold records too, but it was like, but nobody. So in, at that time, nobody was buying records were not cool, right? Records were cool before the 90s and then they become cool. Well, they again. were only it's yeah, not yeah, that they yeah. were cool. They were the they, only they were thing only, you had. They were yeah. Only, yeah, yeah. Well, no, and and I, you know, I have a record player and a bunch of my my parents' old records and all. Like I, I like records a lot, but at the time it was a CD store, right? Sure. Like that, that, yeah, was the bread and, that was the bread and butter um, of what they sold. And yeah, I guess it is. It is my youth a little bit too. But um, like, and then you know, two thousand internet gets invented. Napster file sharing comes about, and people like stop buying CDs, right? Like it got to the point where, um, and 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 Walmart and a bunch of this stuff, like you could go to Walmart and buy a CD as an individual for cheaper than my dad as a small business owner could get it wholesale. Right. And that's like, oh, this market's dead, right? right. And so then he, he closes the store. He was in his mid fifties. He'd never, you know, he'd never really done anything else other than work at CD store record stores and then, and then run one. And he like never for the rest of his life, never, really got a full-time job again, right? He did, you know, some some part-time stuff with my neighbor who built houses. He worked at the local housing authority for like part-time for a little bit. Um and so that really informed and like that was hard on our family, right? That was, it was financially hard. I think it was hard on him in a way that he didn't really know how to process, right? Like so much of our identity, I think especially as as men is wrapped up in like 
providing for your family and your job. That's our pressure point as men. Right. Is if we can't fix something, that's where we get a shit. Yeah. And, and he, and he couldn't, he didn't know what to do. And I like, that's like one of the things that that's how I got interested in economics, right? That's how I got interested in, in business in general. And, um, and like it informs, you know, when I talk to folks who work in the oil and gas industry, who are worried about like the long, their long-term job prospects, who's, who, you know, I was out in, in Midland a few weeks ago talking to, to a geologist who was like, this is my career. Like I've done this for 30 years. It's the only thing I've ever known. And like, you can't just talk about job retraining or like I mean, easily switch industries or anything like that's not going to happen. It's not, it's not as easy as that. And so I think, um, yeah, there's just like a anxiety, like everyone knows that the economy is shifting. Everyone knows that the world is changing. Right. And it's a matter of like, how do we fit into that change and how do we position ourselves and who wins and who loses and who gets left behind? And so like when I, you know, your question was about how do we worry about the economy, right? Like the reason I'm doing this is because like of the economy, I want to leave to my kids and my grandkids, right? Like that's like what this is all about for me. Yeah. So, so let, let's, let's do this. Um, let's, let's go into, to, to kind of just some specifics here just to kind of, so, you know, we could start at the top. I mean, Biden was going to get rid of hydrocarbons. You don't sound like you're getting rid of hydrocarbons. Um, Federal leases, okay. I know we don't have them in Texas. You won't be me- yeah. messing with them, but yeah, I, I, I think federal like, leasing for oil and gas is okay. Yes, um, it's such a small. I don't like that's not an answer, right? Like, I think the whole discussion about federal leasing is like, and even like misses the point. I, I, I was tweeting about this the other day that like you know private, especially in the Permian, right? It's it's all private production, and so like y- yes. For sure, but also that's like not, I don't know, talking about the federal piece of it, I think is is sort of missing the the full picture. Yeah, no, I'll I'll get that. I think and maybe that was a bad example to ask yeah. a railroad commissioner, but it was just I was gonna run through certain certain policies just to to try to say, here's AOC, here's Luke. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think another big issue again doesn't necessarily affect the railroad commission and doesn't affect Texas. But I think what bigger picture, and maybe I should have started with this is to the extent we create a narrative or a feeling that an industry is going to be regulated out of existence, it dries up the capital to it. And even more importantly than that is the valuation multiples on that industry become lower and so right now, an oil and gas company trades at kind of three times EBITDA. Yeah. Guess what? At three times EBITDA, I am not incented to go create more EBITDA. Yeah. I'm incented yeah. to send that money back to my shareholders instead. And, and that's what we're seeing. Right? And that's exactly yeah, what we're course, seeing. What we're seeing. And so I think like the whole narrative starting at top is what filters down and ultimately leads to that. Um, another. Do you think that's changing though? Do you think what? Do you think Ukraine's changed that a little? Like. I feel like in the last eight to twelve months, there's been a total shift in the national 
conversation around oil and gas and the future of of oil and gas in this country. And I'm curious if that has had any. I don't follow the the finance side of it as closely as you do, but I'm curious if you've seen that. Yeah. So, so my, my two cents on that looking at it is, I mean, you had a presidential election where it was literally, we're going to stop fracking. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was the narrative. Then we saw the inevitable, what I think is the inevitable result out of that was just flat out higher gasoline prices. Yeah. And you had the political pressure of that's bad Mm because that's the one metric that people can actually look at and have an opinion on and somehow relate back to. So I think that started to, to, to shift the narrative somewhat. It feels begrudgingly like, and I'm talking about Biden, Biden is begrudgingly having to say, this isn't the worst thing uh, on the, on the planet. And then I think you're right, you, Ukraine, I mean, Putin marching in there and yeah. us going, guess what? When you buy from an authoritarian dictator. Yeah. So so I've heard one of the, the large investment banks uh, has actually put on the ESG favorable list if you can get LNG to Europe, which is which is big. Yeah, that, yeah it's know, a big change. Yeah. So yeah. so I but I mean, you still look at the trading multiples and they have yeah. the stocks have gone up, but so has the EBITDA. So I don't yeah. know that the multiples have have changed that much. And so, well, and if you're going to I mean, this comes back to just like problems with our political system in general, though. Right. If you're going to if you're going to uh, connect the causality there back to the narrative around oil and gas and regulating oil and gas out of existence, like. Right. Like the reason that dem- that is a that is a democratic narrative. Right? right. The reason that that's a democratic narrative is a few reasons. I mean, a few reasons. But I think one of the biggest is the same reason that we see re- Republicans in primaries shifting further to the extremes. You also see the same thing on the Democratic side. Right. That there's um, pressure to make absolute statements, to have those absolute statements be as far to the to play as much to the base as possible in order to win democratic primaries. Right. right? And, and I just think that, um, you know, it's one of the really fortunate things about me not having a primary opponent is like, I didn't have to deal with being attacked from that. You know what I mean? I can, I can say, Hey, these are the practical, reasonable solutions that I believe in that I think are, um, you know, that the vast majority of Texans, want and benefit the vast majority of Texans, right? We don't have to have this conversation that's on either fringe, um, ideally. And I think it's going to be interesting in November to see, you know, people are so tied up to, to party identity and, you know, like they're going to see the D next to my name and we'll see if they'll, they'll get past that. But, um, I mean, we've, yeah, go ahead. What was the max race? And then the low race, I mean, in terms of statewide, what was the highest percent of Democrats gotten in the last few runs? Because Beto lost by 2.6. Beto, Beto yeah. lost in by 18. Two, okay, yeah. so that's the that's kind of the max race. Yeah, 214,000 votes. Okay. Um, and uh, and no, I mean, no Democrat has won the Railroad Commission since 1990, right? Yeah. So that's the year after I was born. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a long time, but it's, it's interesting because we've, we've pulled this race, right. And you look at, you know, you look at the top of the ticket race, the top of the ticket, and it's, 
you know, in a poll, you might see, okay, Abbott versus Beto, you say a bunch of bad stuff about one of them and it moves voters like a point or two, right? Everyone's right. opinions are already formed. Wayne Christian, my opponent, mostly hangs out in his office in Austin. He, more, 70% of voters have never heard of him, right? And so what that means is the combination of people not really knowing who he is, plus the fact that almost everyone in the state had a negative experience with the grid failure. And so I, in a typical election year, like people are not directly experiencing his failed leadership, but this year they did. And so when we tell voters, and this is true with even independents and Republicans, when we tell voters that, you know, Wayne Christian and the Railroad Commission could have prevented the grid failure, they swing in our favor pretty massively, right? And that's, Texas is huge. It's, there's a lot of things at play about if we can communicate to enough people to get them to move. But I think like one of the reasons that we have that opportunity with this race is that, you know, I'm not really running on partisan issues. It's not Republican or Democrat. If, you know, you want to keep the lights on, it's not Republican or Democrat to want people to have more affordable energy or to not like pipeline monopolies, right? And so- I've, um, I've often said that Sarah Stodgner lost the Republican primary for US Senate, not or not railroad commission, but- Yeah, so, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, she, uh, well, we, uh, we did a podcast where Wayne had put out a piece on- Yeah, no, I'm, Sarah, I was, yeah, I was yeah, 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 was, yeah, for sure. We were talking gun control, all of these well, and look of at things. Well, look at the signs on his, on his website, right? He's just like pandering to the base, right? And, and unfortunately, that is where we are in, in U.S. politics in a lot of ways. But candidate, I mean, like, I agree with a huge am amount of things Sarah said, right? Like, she's was totally like a pragmatist trying to solve some of these issues, trying to- um, make them better for Texans, for people who work in the industry, because like the argument, I mean, even take flaring, for example, right? Like I've gone to folks in the industry and said, hey, this is a, you know, the Railroad Commission is not enforcing the regulations on bad actors, right? There's a, bad apples who are spoiling the bunch for everybody. That hurts the reputation of the Texas oil and gas industry. And especially with what's happening in Europe right now, European buyers are going to be looking to buy natural gas from other places outside of Russia. And if Texas wants to compete, they're going to be willing to pay a premium for lower emissions hydrocarbons, right? And so looking at, again, this goes back to where's our economy going, looking at the, the global natural gas market of five years from now or 10 years from now, we need a regulator who can uh, like say with some credibility, hey, this Texas oil and gas is is clean, right? It's good. And we just don't have that right now. Like, no, not only is the Railroad Commission not enforcing the rules on literally just like the rules on the books on flaring, but if they said they had there's they have no credibility. So if they said that they were, no one would believe them. Yeah. No, I it, I mean it, it, in fairness to the Railroad Commission, Please, it's yeah. an it's an awkward position they're in that they have to advocate for the industry yeah you know because i mean it has led to a lot of economic good and yeah in texas and etc but then at the same time time you're playing the uh the regulator and so it, it it is an awkward position for them to to be in and i will say this as the libertarian i'm not sure i have some great idea for a better system yeah. you know because at the at the end of the day I've always been kind of free market yeah. guy and all that, but 
who is actually penalizing you in the marketplace if you're flaring illegally? Nobody, Nobody right? right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And and being the libertarian and the free market depends on you know incentives and penalization, yeah. and so yeah. But there's let's let's work through that a little though. Like there is inconsistent there are rules that some people abide by and some don't and there's inconsistent enforcement of those rules like that from an economic perspective even as a libertarian distorts the market creates messed up incentives and hurts in this case often texans right i think you would argue that if there's going to be rules we should enforce them consistently and clearly right well and i and i will even go a step further yeah. uh to join your side of the the argument is the rules just aren't that arduous, right? They're they're not that hard. I right. mean, I'm an oil and gas guy, blah yeah, blah, yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah. But I mean, it's not that hard to follow the rules. And yes, it costs a little extra money, but it's not the it's not the end of the world. I mean, it's not like we're playing in Colorado. It's not like we're playing no. in California. You know, no. And and you should you would think that even just as a baseline, having you know having someone who's gonna consistently enforce the rules would be would be um beneficial i think a couple other things i'd introduce that i'm curious what your thoughts are like in the last reporting period 99 percent of wayne christian's campaign contributions came from oil and gas executives like 25 people gave him donations we had over 2,000 donations over that period 25 people donated to him like there's no world where that is incentivizes him to do what's best for the public rather than what's best for those 25 people, right? Like that, I don't think anybody would look at that, regardless of your political leanings and say, yeah, that makes sense. And then the, the, you know, the last point that I would just make is like, they are, the, if you go back to 1891, the Railroad Commission, the foundation of the, the agency was around preventing monopoly behavior in the railroads at the time, right? right? But yeah. preventing monopoly behavior. And now what they're doing is the exact opposite, right? There's no transparency in the interstate gas market. They are totally, the pipelines are making huge amounts of money. I mean, even just like you look at the winter storm, Kinder Morgan made a billion dollars in, in a week. Energy Transfer made $2.4 billion in a week and then gave a bunch of money to, the, to Abbott and to Wayne Christian and to the candidates who protected the system that allowed that to happen. It's, you know, it's wild that we, the amount of power that the pipelines have and that that has a negative impact on operators, on producers. It's got a negative impact on the power plants. And then it drives up prices that Texans are paying for electricity, that consumers across the state are paying for electricity. And like when a system like that, when there are such a small number of people benefiting and there's also a money trail that in political donations, like explaining that it's not a huge surprise that that we're in the situation we're in. Yeah, no, I, pipeline stuff's always murky because you get into FERC approval yeah, yeah. on on everything. But I'm just talking and, about interstate, right? Yeah, yeah, within so, which within the state. Yeah, so so you know, and you you get into the to the whole thing if you sign leases for life, and so you do yeah. carve out monopoly type positions. Yeah. That being said, the origin of all those pipelines was like 10 cents an MCI right, for transit. Right. And so it's really the merchant arms yeah. around them in terms of buying the gas. And so I have I have less of a problem with 
well, we bought the natural gas and a price spike happened. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're going to, we're going to go, we're going to go sell it. So I have, I have, I have the problem when the regulated entity utilities are the ones doing that because yeah. that that's ultimately where it comes back yeah. on the rate payer in terms of, well, we took a bet, we bought all this stuff and look, we were wrong and you're going to have to yeah. pay it through rate recovery. So yeah, yeah, that's, we could probably do a whole, whole podcast yeah. on, uh, on that. So, well, and even, even the, Going back to like, yes, there are not, I mean, to your point though, there are natural monopolies, but one of the rules back in econ 101, right? In a natural monopoly is that you have a regulator making sure the natural monopoly is not exploiting that power to the, um, uh, like, and having a negative impact on the public and on consumers, right? Yeah. So that, I, that, that is just like the, we, we could talk about this for three hours. Right. Yeah. No. And and and, and the, like I said, I don't know that I have a perfect solution yeah. here for a for a better regulatory framework. I mean, I do think <clears throat> I do think we have to be very very careful about it because we have this amazing opportunity in Texas, in that we're so big, we have so many resources, and we don't have to touch FERC for a lot of this stuff because. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing, and I think it's also incredibly underreported that happened is, you know, Biden got to appoint the 3-2 majority to the FERC and they changed the rules. Yeah. Now it's all about climate change. So yeah. there will not be massive pipelines ever built in the United States again yeah. until, until we go to your incremental approach. Is this better for climate change? Yeah. I could live I could live with that as yeah, the standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so we have potentially a lot of opportunity to export LNG, yeah. Bitcoin mine, everything you want to do yeah. because of our unique kind of status as an island. So we do have to be careful and thoughtful about this as we go forward. Well, and and I think it, you know, I've talked about this a bunch on the campaign, but we're, we're Texas, we should get our own house in order. And so that we there isn't risk of the EPA or the feds coming in and messing with our, our I agree I but, agree with that. I get I get I get shit on by my Republican fans on yeah. that one but I truly believe that I go your your alternatives the EPA right like you know yeah and and I think you know we continue on this path with the sort of like inconsistent or lack of that I just think when I, when I look at Wayne Christian, I look at the decisions. I, it's they don't seem like they want to solve the problems. Like they don't. Like I'm I'm young and I am so fired up to go solve. These are really complex issues to think them through, to try and solve them, to like move us in the right direction. And I just don't see that from from him and and from you know from the agency in general. Yeah. So okay. I've got to get you out of yeah. here because uh, you got a, another way more important thing to do than this. But I mean, this is more give, fun. Though. <laughs> give me, give me one or two more things you would do, kind of as as a uh, energy czar, and um, then we'll uh, the the then we'll close on the big question. Yeah, of course. Um, so we talked about uh, weatherization. We talked about, um, I think the massive transfer of wealth during the last February's winter storm in terms of um, uh, how much money the pipelines made, I think like we need a different solution for that. So that's bo- both going forward, 
increasing interstate gas market transparency. I mean, we have transparency on the electricity side. We should have it on the gas side. Um, I think like that would help protect Texas consumers. Uh, I'm talking a lot about enforcing the existing rules on flaring, dealing with the um, uh, orphan well situation. Like, there's all this federal money that we're that we could, you could be bringing here, taking advantage of uh, creating jobs, addressing the the orphan well situation. I think like we're not doing that with sort of the vigor and focus that we should be. Um, the you know, I, I know you've spent a lot of time in on Antina Ranch and and just like groundwater is a huge issue, right? Like you look at the um you look at the hundred thousand dollar campaign contribution that that Wayne took right after approving a waste disposal project on top of the Ogallala Aquifer, like th- you know, three days later. Over the objection of staff. Right, right. Literally, yeah. like the way the Railroad Commission works is is that staff of that staff experts evaluate a thing and make a recommendation. And he was just like, no, I'm actually going to ignore you and use my experience as a gospel singer to make this decision that benefits my a donor who's three days from now going to give me a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So I think like they're getting the balance wrong on protecting groundwater. I think that's incredibly clear. Like the fact that, you know, yeah, it just is like over and over again, I think, not not fulfilling that the the part of their mandate that's supposed to like keep the public safe i think it is super important go ahead so yeah if you'll permit me yes please one bit of advice yeah and take it for what it's worth from the random libertarian i actually think as hokey as this might sound is and you may have already done this because i did not peruse your website but before we did this but if you literally listed out specifics on everything and in effect signed it and pledged, yeah. I would not vote for this. Yeah, I would not yeah. vote for that. I think that would help a lot because yeah. there's, I mean, there's just no way to get away from AOC and yeah. Biden and, uh, and the like. And I think with as much specificity as you could do all that, that may go a long way for a moderate to say, okay, He's not going to cross those lines. Yeah. So, well, I think that's a great idea. We have, um, I, I, I think we have an issues page that like pretty clearly outlines it. But I'll send it to you afterwards, and you can tell me. You can say this isn't clear enough. I want more clarity, and I'll, I'm, I'm in. It sounds great. Okay, so let's close with the big question. What's the big question? Do you plan any nudity during this campaign? <laughs> I, I knew that was coming up. Um. I, I do not plan any nudity. I, I frankly, I don't think any of your listeners or anyone in the state would want to see that. Um, I think faced with the opportunity to like, if I could guarantee myself a victory, but I had to get naked, I would do it. Nice. I hope not on this podcast. No, surely <laughs> not. Surely not. Well, Luke, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. This was uh, this was cool to talk. You're yeah. you're welcome uh, back anytime. And uh, like I said, I, th- I think energy is too por- important for not everybody to be talking about this. And more importantly, listening. Yeah, so. 100%, 100%. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. Absolutely. Appreciate it.